Welcome. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me live on Fireside Chat, where you can be a part of the conversation as my virtual audience. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock, and this is my first time. And if you have any, not my first time, but my second time with um, on Fireside Chat live. So I'm still working out the kinks and getting... Um, questions and but be sure to raise your hand or request to get on stage if you have any questions you would like to ask either me or our speaker our guest today uh, is Karen Gross. Karen Gross currently serves as senior counsel to Finn Partners. She advised the Biden election domestic Com policy committee focusing on student mental wellness. She is an instructor in continuing education at Rutgers University Graduate School of Social Work and also sits on the advisory council at the Center for Minority Serving Institutions at Rutgers. She is the award-winning author of three books, Trauma Doesn't Stop at the School Door, Breakaway Learners, and Failure and Forgiveness. She is also the author of a trauma-sensitive children's book series. It's called Lady Lucy's Quest that she's read to more than 3,000 children across the globe. She served for eight years as president of Southern Vermont College and as senior policy advisor to the U.S. Department of Education during the Obama administration. And really, the list goes on and on. But since we don't have that much time, we'll go ahead and get right into it. Um, but people, as you can tell, she is extremely accomplished. Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Karen, do I have you muted? Nice to be with you and Hi. With the audience. Can you hear me now? I can hear you just fine right now. Thank you so much. My apologies. I think I must have hit the wrong button. Believe me, I feel like it's just a learning experience right now. Uh, this is just my second week on Fireside going live. So I appreciate you taking this journey with me. My pleasure. Um, and thank you for the lovely introduction. Oh, my gosh. It's I, it's amazing how much you've done. Um, and, you know, it's a lot of work in trauma education. What was What was it that steered you in this direction? I mean, I think there are a number of things, but what I would tell you is that I saw a number of students across my educational career who were not succeeding. And I kept trying to figure out what accounted for their lack of success because they should have been succeeding. And it's really through that lens of watching kids, teaching students, that I thought about the role that trauma may have played in their lives and that may account for why they struggle both academically and psychosocially. Right. Well, you know, I didn't even know I struggled with trauma until two years ago. Um, I was diagnosed bipolar. It was actually a misdiagnosis. Um, but 10 years ago, when I was diagnosed bipolar, I was always, you know, no one was really talking about trauma. 
um, not in the mainstream media at least. And it was mostly for, you know, soldiers, you know, military vets. So when someone said, oh, you know, childhood sexual abuse survivors suffer PTSD, and then I read the symptoms and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been living with PTSD. I've had so so many issues in school and I, I can't tell you what a relief that was to understand, but I think I would have appreciated it more if I was, you know, younger and realized I wasn't ADHD. I didn't have all of these learning disabilities, but it was just PTSD. Well, it, by the way, PTSD is not insignificant, but understanding what's going on and looking at young people and adults through a trauma lens is hugely valuable, not only for the person, but also in terms of how one helps those who have been traumatized. And sadly, I think you're right, we don't, until very recently, we haven't paid enough attention, in part because the words scare people. I mean, you just say the words trauma and people like shiver. So I've often thought, well, maybe we should call it something else so that people don't have such an adverse reaction. Right. You've written about, you know, the language in trauma therapy with phrases such as triggering or re-triggering can in fact (laughs) trigger trauma. Um, But instead, we should use terms like tuning forks. Why do you think that is so important? Well, one of the things that happens in trauma sadly, is that it never goes away. And what you can do is ameliorate it and make it vastly better, but you will never get rid of it. So for me, the sort of part that needs to be focused upon is that when subsequent things happen, they often allow the earlier trauma to come back. And when it comes back, it comes back in much greater force than perhaps one might expect. It comes back and reverberates. And so the word that's technically used for this is trauma re-triggering. But I thought, oh, that's not a useful terminology, in part because the word triggering isn't a good term. I mean, for anyone who's thought about it in the context of shootings and the like, So I came up with the idea that the way to refer to what now is called trauma re-triggering is to call it hitting the tuning fork. Because in physics, when you hit a tuning fork, physics points out that the tuning fork that is not hit starts to reverberate. And in fact, reverberates at much higher speed than the original tuning fork. And that's why when we have trauma, we have an outsized reaction because the tuning fork that gets hit sets off lots of effects. And so if we think about things in terms of hitting one's tuning fork, um, then I think you can actually not only visualize it, you can think of an actual fork, which I tell people to keep on their desk, a fork maybe wrapped in musical notes, but a fork, um, I think you can understand better what's happening. Right, right. It kind of makes me think of like somatic experiencing, which is something that I did where you kind of feel the sensations in your body 
um, notice them and assign an emotion to it and kind of move it through your body, like using just kind of sensing it. Is, is that what you kind of liken it to? Well, I, I think it's what I would call naming before taming. So we would be well served if we could name what's going on in our minds and our bodies. And if we can name it, then, but only then, can we tame it. If we don't know what it is and we don't recognize it, then it's very hard to tame it. And if we can name it, then we can tame it. And then we can frame it as in recognize its importance, not only to us, but more generally, but also tame it and frame it in terms of creating a structure with which we can deal with it on a broader base level. So, right, right. So the name, tame, and frame is the architecture I use, but I do think it relates to identifying what one is feeling both in one's body and in one's mind, um, because as people have noted, they're not separate, they're deeply interconnected. Right. And I, I mean, you refer to our tuning forks, you know, I, I, is it as our nervous system and how our body reacts and sends signals to our brain to kind of refer back to that traumatic me memory? And when, when you say, once we're able to name it, you know, how do you fine tune it or, or tame it? <laughs> okay. Now that's not easy, right? I mean, it's not as, <laughs> it, it starts with understanding what's happening. And once you understand what's happening, you can recognize what's happening to your mind and your body. And uh, the first thing you can do is do activities that um, touch on your senses. If you use your senses, that helps you recalibrate. So sight, smell, touch, all of our senses um, help. And one of the interesting features of all of this is that we often diminish the importance of actually listening to what's in our head and what's happening in our body. And if we do that, both for ourselves and others, we can understand way better what's going on. Yeah, I, I think the difficult part is realizing that there's something that's underlying. There's the, the, your, the nervous system overreacting, or I guess, you know, the fight, flight, survival mode. I feel like, at least for me, I had no idea. Like, I just thought, oh, this is the way I am. I'm bipolar. Um, I didn't know. Like I said, I didn't know I was dealing with trauma. But how can someone identify that, especially if they've blocked a lot of it out? Well, I think our schools can play a role if teachers and school counselors are trained to understand and recognize trauma. Unfortunately, schools of education only recently have started actually offering courses on trauma, which is kind of startling, don't you think? Um, <laughs> and in today's world, um, with all that's happening, the pandemic being just one piece of what's happening. We would be wise to recognize trauma and its impacts, but first you have to know it exists. 
So many kids and many adults don't recognize trauma. They don't even know it's something that can impact them. Right. All right. I, I do have, you know, I know that there are people out there who have gone through significant trauma, yet it's, they're usually, oh, well, other people have had it worse than me, or you've had it worse than me. Um, do you think, do you believe that there is just, there's, a, there's, I believe there's something wrong with comparing people's trauma because it is relative to you and your nervous system. Well, it's very clear that different people respond differently to different traumatic events. And recognizing people for who they are and the importance of individuality when teachers deal with students is critically important. People are vastly different from each other, even when exposed to the same event. So if you take a, a much simpler situation, Suppose that in a family, um, one of the parents becomes very ill. How each child responds may differ dramatically from the other. And yet we assume that all people exposed to the same thing will react in the same way, but they don't. And so once you start reading and recognizing that, oh, wait a second here, different people feel differently about the same event, you can start to appreciate what you as an individual are feeling. So, for example, if you've experienced sexual abuse in your past, it can get re-triggered by a variety of things that you're not even aware of happening. And yet, if you can go back and have someone help you realize what's happening, you can see what's going on. And so for me, part of the goal here is an educational one in the biggest sense. Have people become more aware of what they're experiencing? Because if they do, if you become more aware, then you can do something about it. In the absence of awareness, it's very hard mm -hmm. to to come to terms with one's past. And as I tell people, um, in terms of my own life, I say what I say, not only based on the literature and the studies and all the work I've done as an academic and as a leader, but also from my personal experience, where I very openly share the trauma that I've experienced, because I think it helps people to know that not only can you deal with it, but first you have to recognize its existence. And that's not easy. We don't all want to admit something horrible happened in our past. Um, but admitting it, owning it, naming it will be more helpful than one realizes, even those who are reluctant. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like... I feel like my husband always thought there's something going on and it's, you know, the abuse that I had experienced, I never talked about. I never mentioned it to a soul, um, but it did. But my I was very reactive. Everything made me extremely sensitive. And, you know, I didn't I don't know if I wanted to admit it myself or 
someone just told me I had bipolar disorder and I thought that was just it. Um, that I was just, I just was born this way and just extremely reactive, but it, it really did help to name it when I realized that PTSD was a thing that affected other people and sexual abuse survivors. Um, and it was, it gave me, it gave me the opportunity to seek out the tools that I needed. And I feel like all of the tools that are out there, like somatic experiencing or um, even psychedelic treatment, which is psychedelic assisted therapy, which I did myself, um, which was um, extremely helpful. And EMDR, I mean, there are just so many ways I felt like I, I I was able to heal and I'm still healing, right? It's just like, it's, it's an ongoing road to recovery where, you know, it's just, it has its peaks and valleys. Um, and, you know, you talk, you talked about the tuning fork and that it should be included in trauma education. How does that, how does one even do that? <laughs> Good question. Um, let me just go back to something you pointed out in terms of your own experience and recognizing. So the kind of approaches to remediate or ameliorate trauma differs from person to person. And I think one has to be open to different approaches. But what is also sadly true is that many people are mis, many children in particular, are misdiagnosed. Uh, they're treated as if they have attention deficit disorder or some other kind of um, impairment that is affecting their success. And the misdiagnosis doesn't help because the remediation of that is different from what you would need to recover from trauma. And the best example I can give you of this is if you may remember the hearings involving Brett Kavanaugh for the Supreme Court and a very remarkable woman, a PhD, recalled what had happened in her youth with Justice Kavanaugh. Now, no one wanted to believe that. And they thought her memory was faulty, even though, by the way, she specializes in memory. But what happened after that event was that many people started realizing that what they had experienced in their own lives was sexual abuse that they had not recognized, admitted, or dealt with. So when you think of Professor Blasey Ford and you think of the fact that she has two front doors, which she never really understood why, she has been dealing with the abuse she had for years and years and years. And interestingly, when people criticized her for not remembering some of the details, like how she got home, anyone who's familiar with trauma knows that that's exactly what happens. Your memory actually cuts off. It Neural pathways are shut down by trauma. So the fact that she didn't remember is actually evidence that she was abused, not evidence that she wasn't. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I mean, there are times when I was asked about the abuse and I, I couldn't even remember, like I couldn't pinpoint an exact age. And for some reason I felt 
awful about that. Like, why can't I remember? And and then it started making me feel like people were doubting me. Um, but I mean, I was at a wonderful treatment center when I, I when it first came out, when I first talked about it. And and obviously they were very trauma informed. And so it was it was very easy to talk to them and and feel comfortable. Um but I do, I do want to talk a little more about um, being trauma informed in, in schools. Uh, but I first want to take a minute to uh, thank our, our sponsor for this week, which is um, Pair Networks. You know, if if you have a business and you need a website, and what's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag and drop page design. And they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever they need it, 24 hours a day. 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of web hosting for free by using the code quickstart. That's pair.com slash free promo code quickstart to get started today. And be on the lookout for a new revamped website for a trauma survivor thrivers podcast coming soon. Uh, so, Karen, getting back to being trauma informed, I, 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 I think when we talk about trauma education and children, I feel like there it needs to be it's necessary to have um, trauma informed counselors because, like you were saying, there are a lot of reasons why some of these children may have behavioral issues or. Um, you know, academic issues like I did. Um, and it would have been a lot easier if someone just asked, what's going on at home? And and maybe I would have answered or maybe I would have been too scared to. But what do you think needs to be done in the education system? Well, I think actually, and this will sound a little counterintuitive, but if there's a silver lining to the pandemic, it's that people are realizing that lots of kids are acting out and they're acting out because of what's happening to them in their home environment where they've been for many, many months. And that being in school has provided historically a way that kids can find some peace and tranquility when things are traumatic at home. And so I think one of the things that has been happening is that increasingly people are becoming aware of the fact that kids are now experiencing trauma and our educators need to get themselves up to speed as to how to deal with that trauma. And for better or for worse, that's not been a focus of many educators and it often gets shuttled off to other people, like send the kid out of the room or send the kid to the principal or send the kid somewhere other than in the classroom. But in truth, if we could help educators, and now we have an opportunity to do that, if we can help educators, they can help our kids. 
Absolutely. Um, you you did advise the Biden Election Domestic Policy Committee, and you did focus on mental wellness. What was what was your intention there? So I, I think you may have noticed that the current Secretary of Education um, has been very aware of trauma and the need for trauma-sensitive responses. In fact, he's giving a speech at an upcoming trauma uh, workshop. So I think we may see more messaging coming from the top, um, which I think is important so that people don't think this is just, you know, something that is fad-ish, you know. Oh, I guess trauma is the watchword for this week. No, actually, it's a really important thing to understand. And if we do, we can help all of our children. And that for me is critical. All of our children, not some of our children, all of our children. And um, so for me, um, I actually have more hope now than I did that trauma will be seen and recognized and addressed. And teachers are struggling so hard with the behavioral issues in classrooms, including from kids who never had classroom behavior issues, that they're starting to say, hang on a second, something is going on here. And what's going on is the impact of trauma. So they are seeing that. So actually I'm heartened, not disheartened. You know, trauma is like an invisible backpack that we wear. And the older we get, the bigger the backpack gets. And we carry it with us everywhere. The problem is that it's invisible. It's not like we wear a sign saying, oh, I've been traumatized. In fact, sometimes we're carrying the backpack without even knowing everything that's in it. Right. And so one of the things that teachers can do is start to say, oh, wait a second here. Let's see if we can ask the why question. Not just look at the behavior and say, oh, bad. But look at the behavior and say, why is this student doing this particular thing now? And I think increasingly more teachers are doing that. And in fact, many school districts are increasingly trying to think about discipline differently because you would discipline someone who's been traumatized differently than you would discipline someone who was not traumatized. So when you act out or have an outsized response and you've been traumatized, it isn't like you intend to do whatever it is you're doing. It's something that happens to you. Mm -hmm. There's a really big difference between intending something and it happening to you. Right. And, and you know, as a parent too, I, I feel like that is, that's also a way to kind of look at your own child's behavior. I, I I know that because I was traumatized and it was just because just a couple, you know, years ago is when I realized, oh, I'm traumatized. I've been, I have PTSD and me being so reactive to my children was an issue and, you know, therefore kind of trickling down kind of, you know, moving this cycle along of trauma, 
But once I was able to get the help, I was able to kind of, I mean, I still, obviously I don't, I'm, I'm not perfect and I, I have my moments, but when I'm with, when I talk to my children and when they're acting out, the majority of the time I kind of step back and say, what's happening here? And, and, you know, there have been a few times where, you know, my daughter who is seven has said, actually this happened at school and it's been bothering me. So, uh -huh. you know, I feel like asking why when there's just behavior that you are not happy with, I think is, is the key in just spe speaking to all children, really. I agree with you. And, and you raise a really important point. Um, and one that's actually pretty frightening, which is trauma can be transmitted from generation to generation, not just through behavior, but epigenetically. And so I think one of the things that we have to be aware of is if that's true, that trauma can be transmitted across generations, we should be working really hard to deal with trauma remediation with the current generation so that we don't have a future generation that's struggling with trauma as well. Right. Exactly. Thank you. And, you know, as Karen, as I mentioned in my intro, you are an award-winning author of not just one, but three books on trauma education. And you have also published trauma-sensitive children's books. What was your purpose in authoring the these books about trauma and moving um, in the genre of children? Well, you know, it's interesting um, because many people have teased me um, about, so, so what's a college president doing writing children's books? In fact, I think that may be the question I'm asked most frequently. Mm -hmm. But um, like, shouldn't you be like writing something else? Now I am obviously writing adult books as well. But one of the things I've realized is that if you want to improve education, um, and you want to make a difference that lasts over the long haul, you have to think about it by um, the way some people jokingly refer to voting in Chicago. Think about it early and often. And so moving the educational train back, moving it back to early childhood is the best way that I know of to start thinking early about how you can improve the lives of young people. Now, that doesn't mean that all my work with adults and teaching adults, which I still do, isn't important. It is. But if you really want to change the face of the lives of children, start early. And that's actually why I started writing children's books, trauma-sensitive children's books, because it was a way that I could start to impact the lives of children. Yeah, don't discount your education for adults because once you educate the adults, they can educate their own children. Yes, that's true. That's true. But we also can help kids mm -hmm. and enable them to navigate more effectively in a really complicated world. If we help them and respond to them, in ways that are trauma sensitive and trauma responsive. So my goal is actually not just to help children, but by having adults read trauma responsive children's books and talking about the issues in them, they too become more aware of what's going on and how best to serve the children of 
our nation and perhaps other nations as well. Beautiful. Well, Thank you. Children's books um, are all trauma sensitive. And I'd like to think that they are kind of like a gateway to understanding. So that's how I view them. And I hope that in that sense, it shares with kids that reading, um, I mean, the stories matter, but what's underneath the stories and what the stories stand for um, also is important. Absolutely. You've contributed to January's issue of um, Authentic Insider, which is uh, our, our magazine. You have done a lot of healing through art, which you graciously share in your piece, which I urge everyone to check out the latest magazine, Authentic Insider Monthly. She is a contributor for January, and she she we she provided these beautiful pieces. And I'm I'm just wondering, how do you use art to heal? Well, I want to just comment on on the authenticity of that piece. You asked the question, how did I become who I am? Mm -hmm. And why do I do what I do? And there are obviously lots of levels at which I could answer that. But your question was so forthright and honest that the piece that emerged in response to your question is, I hope, as honest an answer as your honest question was. And so for me, art has been an avenue for expressing, in addition to words, um, concepts, because lots of us are visual and we respond to visual stimuli. And so I've done art on tuning forks. I've done art with pencil eraser tips. I've done art with broken pieces of common objects with the saying that comes from Japanese pottery, more beautiful for being broken. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a whole series now um, that's coming out of um, broken pieces where I'm lab labeling them finding peace, as in P-E-A-C-E, mm -hmm. through pieces, P-I-E-C-E-S. And so my hope is that people not only can learn from the art, but they themselves might be able to do the art um, because it's made with ordinary objects that are sort of part of our lives. And so my goal actually is to enable others to do art as an approach to finding their way forward and sharing that art. I hope does that. And I think the pieces in the article that you published show art that others can replicate. It is beautiful. It is, you, you can tell there's emotion behind it. And, and, you know, I did in, in my residential treatment when I was getting help for trauma, I, I did art therapy and it was, it was very healing. It was one of my favorite parts of the programming that I was doing. So yes. Well, Absolutely. some people say, I can't do art unless I'm an artist. But the truth is, we're all artists, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. craft our own lives, we craft stories, we've lived lives, we've told stories. And so the idea here is actually to encourage more people to see the art within themselves. 
and to be able to express whatever it is that's in their minds um, with greater ease. And art can do that. I mean, the goal here isn't, you know, saying, oh, I have to be as good as artist A or B or C. No, that's not it at all. Mm-hmm. The point is expression, self-expression. And some people can do it in words, but some people find it easier um, to do it in art. And so the goal is to help people so that they can better share what's going on within them. Because at the end of the day, to go back to where we started, if you can name it, you can tame it. So for some people, art is the pathway there. Mm-hmm. Not for everybody, but for some people. By the way, kids draw all the time. Right. And if you let kids draw, their drawings are immensely revelatory. Um, I mean, so are the buildings that they build when they, um, you know, use blocks. I mean, there are reasons that kids build what they build with blocks. You know, some kids build towers, some Kids build enclosed circles. I mean, kids build what they're thinking and feeling about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to it. Yes. Yeah, I think we ought to look at the structures of... Um, so, and, you know, it's interesting. Um, early in my son's life, hmm, he might have been like hmm, four or so. Um, he got injured, um, and I worried about the impact of that injury. Um, by the way, he's fine. Um, and um, so I worried about it, and I hadn't thought much about this particular kind of injury. He injured his teeth. Um, so anyway, I, um, I noticed that night that he had built a very, very tall tower out of his blocks, so tall that he had to stand on a chair. And when my late husband came home that night, the first thing my son said to him is, look how tall the tower is. It's taller than you. And I realized then that what had happened to him had made him question, was he okay? Mm -hmm. And yet he displayed his thoughts by building a really big tower that sort of allowed him to express what he was feeling. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I feel like we do really need to really be present and, and kind of be super involved and understand what our children are doing. Um, because I feel like it does reveal a lot. And I think sometimes, and I'm not trying to be difficult here. I think sometimes it's hard because we want everything to be so right for our children (laughs) that it's hard to admit when things are like not quite right. And we'd rather like sort of like push things you know, under some rug somewhere. And I often say to people, for lots of what's going on in today's world, there is no rug big enough. Uh, (laughs) So one does better not to try to hide things under some impossible rug. We do better to see it, deal with it, acknowledge it, 
and navigate forward with increased understanding. Um, so, you know, rugs come in all sizes, but in today's world, there is no rug big enough to cover what's going on in our world. So we would do well not to be in search of a rug. <laughs> I agree. Very, very well said. Thank you. Do you have any parting words before we, we go? I have enormous hope. I have hope that because of how complicated our world is, that we will have opened the door to improving education and understanding the lives of our children. And so I, rather than being discouraged right now, I'm actually encouraged. Um, and I would suggest to others um, that hope is a really important antidote to trauma. And one of the things that I do, and um, we can do this here, is that I often carry a ceramic stone that says hope, and I keep it in my pocket. And, you know, when I get worried about things, I look down at that. So if you want to pick one of your readers, I can send you the stone and you can get it to them. Um, so ask one of the listeners if they want one of those hope stones and I will gladly send it along. All right. Would anyone like to raise their hand to get one of those hope stones sent to them? And I, I obviously I will be reaching out to you afterwards so I can, um, get that to you. All right. It looks like Callie, is, I will be reaching out to you afterwards. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for joining me. And Karen, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. And thank you for all the good work that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that was Karen Gross, award-winning author and trauma-informed expert on education. For more on Karen, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. She also contributed, like I said, to January's issue of Authentic Insider, which is a fantastic piece accompanied with beautiful artwork, you know, you can find that at my website too. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. I'll be back here tomorrow with Amy Guerrero regarding substance abuse and thriving in recovery. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. I'm Laura Lee Binstock. Take care.